0: This is Howard Bloom. I'm the author of seven books, and uh, if you believe them, uh, Channel 4 TV in Britain has called me the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Ford of the 21st century. I'm gonna be discussing some absolutely mind-blowing topics with Dove Baron. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome back to this episode in this particular series with the renaissance man himself howard bloom howard bloom has been writing uh, for the washington post wall street journal wired cosmopolitan magazine he's lectured at yale stanford columbia universities he's been part of the asian space technology summit um he's given lectures and, and published articles on things like quantum physics cosmology neuroscience um, evolutionary, biology, psychology, economics, aerospace. Meanwhile, he also had the biggest PR firm for music in the world, representing people like Michael Jackson, who we talked about earlier, Billy Joel, who we spoke about, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, Paul Simon, Kiss, Queen, you name it, he's the man. So we were finishing up talking about this, this desire to create awe and it was in Michael Jackson and uh, uh, to create awe in others. And it was an express, he felt like he came from God and you believe that that was his expression of that too. Um, but we're talking about just at the end there about that need for, awe, that need to bring, awe. it's something that I am fascinated with this non-ordinary state, this ecstatic state that I think it, it it transforms us we need it more than ever today i think i honestly think it's why the there is the new um interest in psychedelics it's this looking for non-ordinary states is this this sense of breaking out of the normal because on the right we've got a very polarized uh, idea from what's on the left and on the left is all this political correctness which is really about in many ways for me it seems to be about uh the the uh, thought police, and on the other side, you know, anything and everything is okay, including hates and race and all the other kind of crazy stuff. You were talking about it about um, one of the things we talked about here, which was the the infrastructure of of a fantasy and how that ties into creating that sense of war. Leaders so away, there are,
0: there are two things to be aware of there is an envelope of human possibility. When Roger Bannister in 1954 broke the four minute mile for the first time, he pushed the bounds yes. of that envelope of human possibility. Yes. Michael Jackson pushed the bounds of the, he pushed the envelope of human perception. And yeah. it is vital that we not lose Michael's contribution because of the sexual accusations. We have to allow Michael his space to expand our bounds of perception Mm -hmm. and possibility. And all of this, expanding the bounds of human perception and human possibility is a profoundly multi-generational enterprise. And so I became aware of that when I had a client um, named Bill Chinnick. And Bill Chinnick was not a remarkable songwriter. He was not a remarkable singer, but there was something strange about his guitar work. And, and Bill told me this story. One day, he was playing a little club in New Jersey. He was forced by the mediocrity of his songs to do little clubs. And there was a little old man sitting in the back of the audience. And Bill did his normal set, and little old man sat there, and he, he was his eyes were goggling. And finally, he waited until all the rest of the audience left. He came to the foot of the stage. And he said, son, how did you do that? And uh, Bill Chinnick said, sir, when I was a kid, I loved Les Paul. And I listened to Les Paul records with my guitar in my hands. And I worked for three years to try to be able to do what Les Paul did. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, I got it. And Les Paul said, son, I am Les Paul.
1: (laughs) Fantastic.
0: Yes. Don't you realize I invented multi-tracking? In other words, that had been eight Les Pauls that Bill Chinnick had been listening to, but he thought it was one Les Paul, and if Les Paul could do it, then he felt he could do it. And when wow. he was finished, he could do it. He could let, do. Let, eight let's put eight Les Pauls.
1: in that. that is, that is. You know, one of the things I love, and I'll tell you this: one of the things I love is when you meet someone who sh- who believes in you enough. To show you what you didn't believe was possible is possible. So here's Bill Chinnick meeting Les Paul via vinyl. Right. And showing him here's what's possible, buddy. Right. Go do this. And he practices for three years and he does something that then amazes the person who is who he's inspired by because he did what was quote impossible because it right. was no multi-track. He just was playing it.
0: And the impossible, when we're talking about the quality of awe, wonder, and surprise, we're not only talking about a deep experience that it's almost impossible to describe to another human being, we're also talking about doing something impossible. When Michael Jackson did the moonwalk and you saw it for the first time, your jaw dropped for a simple reason. It was impossible. It was impossible to walk backward like that. Well, what is the product of generation after generation of trying to do impossibilities in order to evoke awe, wonder, and surprise? It expands the boundary of human possibility. The four-minute mile, which was impossible in 1953, has been so possible ever since that 18,000 people or 1,800 people have done it. Michael had a quality of awe, wonder, and surprise, which if we can begin to comprehend it, can expand our personal boundaries. Now, this is where we get into the infrastructure of fantasy, another multi-generational thing. Um, back in the 1870s, there was a guy in France who was a part-time stockbroker, but he had a hobby. And if you were his mother, or if you were his wife, you would have said Jules, get rid of this hobby. Concentrate on being a full-time stockbroker. Make a living, for God's sakes. But no, this guy, there was a a cannon that had been built um, in the United States originally for the War of 1812, and then it had been made bigger and bigger and bigger until it was used in the Civil War, and it could toss a 20-inch shell, foot and a half in whatever it is, diameter Mm -hmm. shell. But So Jules imagined that you built this cannon big enough to hold a livery coach, and then you fired that livery coach into the heavens, and it did a trip around the moon. And he wrote this up as a story, again, with everybody around him who's saying, Jules, get back to something real, for God's sakes. So Jules Verne wrote From Earth to the Moon a whole generation of kids grew up on the book from Earth to the moon. and what had been Jules Verne's impossible ceiling that everybody told him he should get away from because he was wasting his time became their floor yes and they stood on that floor and they reached higher. What do I mean? There was a guy in Germany named hermann Oberth who read from Earth to the moon and it refashioned his life. Um, there was a guy in uh, Russia, named Silikovsky. And he read From Earth to the Moon when he was a kid, and it refashioned his life. And both of these guys imagined something really weird. In firing a cannon, you have all of the explosives in the mouth of the cannon. Once the coach has left the cannon's mouth, it doesn't carry anything that could burn up the inhabitants. And But their idea was put the fuel, in the back of the projectile itself, right next to the people it's firing. I mean, this is ridiculous. You want to blow these people to bits? But the Chinese have been doing it since 1250. It was yes. called the rocket. And in 18, the War of 1812, um, this, the, Ameri- the national anthem of the United States talks about the rockets' red glare. That's the War of 1812. And that's British Congreve rockets, which mm-hmm. were standard in the military at that point. So. The idea of Oberth and Silikovsky was to build really big versions of these little tiny rockets um, and fire it to the moon. Well, two kids in Germany grew up reading From Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne, and they grew up reading Tsilikovsky and Oberth. And they became, when they were early teenagers, members of the German Rocket Club. And then there was a political change in Germany. Now, rockets had only been about the size of my arm up until then, um, because nobody had a budget. Right, Kids were using their allowances to build these things. (laughs) And and there was a major change in government in 1933. And one of these two guys left Germany because he didn't like what was coming down the pike, as he saw it. And the other one stuck around, and he had Mm -hmm. a stroke of luck. The new government wanted to Uh, Initially, they wanted to uh, have the British as their allies because they were racial cousins, according to the philosophy of the new leader, and the British didn't go for that at all. And so he became vengeful, and he wanted to pound London into the turf. And Mm -hmm. so um, this guy who had grown up on Jules Verde, Oberth, and Silikovsky convinced him that he could build rockets not the size of your forearm, but bigger than your torso much bigger than your torso that would rain one and two ton explosives on london and mm-hmm. beat england into submission so through this stroke of political luck he got the budget he needed yes. to build these damned rockets and these rockets were the v2s yep. um then the end of world war ii was coming and, and he oh could Earth, see that happening he, and, and, and this guy was at Ipinamunde, which was the rocket headquarters for Germany. Um, and he saw that the Russians were advancing from one direction and the Americans were advancing from the other direction. And he really did not want to be caught up in a Stalinist purge in Russia and killed for no reason whatsoever, which were, you know, the odds of that were very good in Russia at the time. So, Told his brother, get on a bicycle, ride down to the Americans, and tell them we want to meet their leader, which is where the line that aliens always apparently use I want to see your leader um, (laughs) came from. (laughs) Yes, take me to your leader. So he sent his brother down to the Americans. The American ran into a tank squadron um, and said, Take me to your leader. And, uh, well, that was a little out of the question, but the Americans took them in anyway and got this entire unit of, uh, of rocket experts, the world's leading rocket experts at the time. And they brought them to the United States. And the, the key person was a guy named Werner von Braun.
1: Yeah, Werner and, von Braun, who... Right. Who, who...
0: And Werner von Braun in the 1940s, there was a guy... Um, who had designed, he was an extraordinary artist and he had designed movie sets and he had designed the facades of buildings, including the Chrysler Building in New York, which is one of the most, has one of the most extraordinary facades you will ever see. Yeah. But in his heart, what he really wanted to do was paint space paintings. So Werner von Braun found him and gave him the opportunity to paint space paintings, painting Werner von Braun's vision of what could happen in space colonies like that colony that you saw um, in 2001 a space odyssey that's like yeah. a great big donut with spokes um that it creates its own artificial gravity by rotating all of that was Werner von braun so Werner von braun and chesley bonestell the artist put together this exquisite vision that you could not resist and they got it into collier's magazine in four issues and they got it into a dozen books. And they had a fan, um, That a fan of these books. And that fan had just landed himself a deal for an eight o'clock on Sunday night television show, the plum of the week with a brand new network called ABC. And he went to Werner Von Braun and he said, what if I gave you 10 minutes on each of my shows? to show us our future in space. And Werner said yes. And the guy's name was Walt Disney. And the show was the Walt Disney show. But what I'm showing you is that one generation stretches and creates a ceiling. And the next generation stands on that as a floor and in turn stretches, reaches up, and creates a new ceiling, which in turn becomes the floor of the next generation because the space vision that came from Jules Verne and Silikovsky and Oberth um, was the space vision that led to America's space program. It was,
1: yeah, it's it. I mean, it's one of the things I just love. That. I mean, again, that's like the you know, it's like the James Burke thing we were talking about earlier. Is that nothing is disconnected, and in in, in quantum physics, in particularly in resonance, in the physics of resonance. We see that nothing is separated from anything else, and everything builds upon everything else. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of just the way that we are egoically designed, we tend to forget history. We tend to forget that I, I'm my ideas are built on the foundation of the ideas before, and the ideas before, and the ideas before, and the, as you said, this multi generational, but. Talk to us about this now because I want to talk about the need for this now because we ag- we're ignoring history in many ways. We've also become quite stunted. I see that people have become kind of um, sort of muted about their aspirations and moving forward, uh, particularly after a pandemic and much of the other things that have gone on, and this very hardcore political forces that are in place at this time. It seems like that whole idea of the ecstatic built on the previous ecstatic, not as a ceiling, but becoming a floor. And I know you've been doing work with Newt Gingrich, who you know might seem like the personification of the absolute reverse of or Lead us down that road a little bit.
0: Well, let's go to Newt Gingrich. This is another truly remarkable experience. Yeah. Um, I lead for space groups in my spare time. Um, one of which I was conned into founding by Buzz Aldrin himself. Um, and um, so a friend of mine was about to uh, retire from the military. And retirement from the military is like a graduation ceremony. It's, they make a big deal of it. It's the beginning of the next step of your career. Mm -hmm. So there was a mini space conference of about five people who really matter in the space industry. And I was invited down because I'm a member of this crew, this group. And I went because this is a friend who has come to my birthday parties a couple of times. So I, I sat at this. When I arrived in the room, I was a little late. And there was only one seat at this 20-person conference table. Dove, normally conference tables are 10 or 16 people, not 20 people. A very long conference table. And the only seat was at the foot of the table. And I don't merit any kind of special authority. So I felt very shy about mm-hmm. going and taking that particular seat. And they, they insisted that I take that seat. And at the head of the table was a three-star general with whom I'd been in touch for three years. Um, And I listened to these guys for an hour or two and finally opened my mouth for the first time. And I said, what you said is the following. What you said is the following. What you said is the following. All this means that what you really want is. And then I laid out a $2 billion space program. Um, and, And the unanimity in the room you know, have you ever been in a room where you have presented an idea that wasn't quite there yet, but could be implicit in what everybody is saying? Mm -hmm. And when you lay out that idea, it is exactly what people have been hungry for, even though they had never thought of it before. You become the tongue of that group in the room, the voice of that group in the room. So I said, okay, we've got to, put together a group to effectuate this, to make this happen. And we should put it together around our three-star general. He's the obvious leader for this. And everybody, including the three-star general said, no, 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 you have to lead this. Okay, so I started to re- lead this $2 billion moon program group. And uh, we made it in time, Newsweek, um, at MSNBC, um a whole politico a whole bunch of outlets and uh, one day i got a call from a friend in the space community saying we're going to meet newt gingrich on friday would you like to come well look if you are serious about making a difference in the real world then you take any avenue to power that you can get as long as it's ethical and moral absolutely So I had to say yes. Um, Even though this was going to be on time when I'm normally asleep, and because I was in bed for 15 years with a serious illness, I have to be very careful about maintaining my sleep patterns. But no, it was worth it to meet Newt Gingrich. So I took the train down to Washington. And as we were crowding into the conference room where we were going to meet with Newt, I tried to maneuver the three-star general into the position immediately to Newt's right and he outmaneuvered me, and I ended up in the position to Newt's immediate right. So when Newt walked into the room and sat down, again, my left knee in this case was up against his right knee, something I never expected in a million years. And in the same way that Michael was a person so remarkable that he was a level beyond the normal human beings, even normal human beings like Buzz Aldrin, and the 11th president of India. He was a quantum leap beyond them. Newt is some weird kind of quantum leap beyond normal humanity that I have not figured out yet. So um, Newt, first of all, he's as wide as two human beings. He's gained a lot of weight since you last saw him.
1: Right.
0: Um, and they went around the table and got everybody to make a tiny little presentation. And then they came to me last. And I made my presentation about the $2 billion moon program. Now, Dove, one of the things that makes you and me intuitives and empaths when it comes to other human beings is our ability to read facial language, tiny little micro gestures, micro micro expressions of the face, and body language. And when I was making my presentation, Newt sat there as if he were carved on Mount Rushmore, his face did not move. His pupils did not dilate and constrict. Um, His body did not move. Um, There was no indication of how he was responding to this. And normally, there is a sentence by sentence response that another person gives you without realizing it. It was the craziest thing I'd ever run into. Um, And I knew I had failed. Um, I had utterly failed at our pitch. And then three weeks later, I got a call saying nude is going with our program. What? <laughs> he was actually listening to me. I mean, that's utterly beyond belief. And then I did a radio show. I do every Wednesday night I appear on 545
1: radio stations.
0: And there are people who follow the radio show I'm on, Coast to Coast AM. And um, I I, I was on a radio
1: when it was what was his name?
0: Oh Art Bell! Oh that Art was Bell. wonderful. I had wonderful times with Art Bell. Yeah, that but was, at, when I first moved here,
1: Art Bell yeah. was like I had to listen.
0: So I, a huge fan of that show is a guy named John Katsimatidis. and he is he founded a grocery chain that became wildly successful in Manhattan, and then he built it into an investment enterprise. And now I am told he owns ABC Radio, which is the leading talk radio station in North America. And I was invited to be on his show because he's a huge fan of mine. Why? Because he listens to me on Coast to Coast. And there was another guy, John is extremely well connected politically. And there was another guy on the show whose quality of articulation floored me. And if I'd had the time, I would have called to get his or emailed to get his uh, phone number and email address so I could email him. But I don't have the time. All of my time is booked. And uh, one day I'm out walk- doing my daily walk in the park, which is an opportunity to listen to books um, and talk with my girlfriend. It's a very useful time. And all of a sudden my phone started to ring while I was on the phone with my girlfriend. And it was an unknown number. I picked it up. And it was the guy who had been so brilliantly articulate on the phone, uh, I mean, on the, te- the the radio show. Right. And his name is David Patterson. He's the former governor of New York State, and like me, he's a Democrat. So I looked for one of my projects that he might fit into, that might give him room to expand in his interests. And the, when I gave him the two billion dollar Moon Prize Group, his Eyes lit up. but you could hear it over the phone, and so he's a part of that group. So I now have a bipartisan group. It's these two guys, Newt Gingrich and David Patterson, a Republican, an arch Republican, and a Democrat. Um, and we have Robert Walker, who's the former head of the House Science and Technology Committee, and we have Stephen Quast, our three-star general. And that's it. That's our team. Well, um, the current president, Joe Biden, thank God, um, just named his head of NASA. And it's Bill Nelson, who is a politician who's been involved with space um, for the last 30 years, Mm -hmm. 40 years, actually. Um, And I didn't think he was good news for us because he's going to want to continue with a rocket that's just, uh, we won't even go into its story. It's destroying America's space program. This right. particular rocket. And um, but when we had our meeting of the two billion dollar moon prize group a couple of days ago, I said, Does anybody have an in to Bill Nelson, the new head of NASA? And David Patterson said, Well, I had dinner with him one night, but I don't really think that constitutes an in. However, I can try to get in touch with him. And Bob Walker, Robert Walker, the former head of the House Science Committee, who is a Republican said, oh, no, I've got a very close relationship with this guy. We've traveled together. We've done all kinds of things together. Give him a couple of weeks to go through his confirmation hearings, and then we'll, we'll put together a meeting. And David, I want to take you with me. In other words, he wants to take David Patterson, my former governor, with him to give him bipartisan credentials. So then I got, uh, at the end of this meeting, Steve Quast, my three-star general, perked up and said, Howard, Howard, thank you for putting this group together. Because there are very few groups right now that can claim to be bipartisan. Exactly. And we're one of them. So, but it's, what is it really all about? A nation that looks up goes up, a nation that looks down goes down. Our post-ecological thinking is destroying us. Doug, Mm -hmm. it is destroying us because it is telling us the only thing that we can expect From our use of technology is the utter destruction of the planet. And so it is instead of rousing dreams that aspire ever higher, it is rousing nightmares that aspire to nothing but the deconstruction of the civilization we are part of. And that is death. But it's not going to be a death for humanity. Why? As you said before, I'm the co-founder and co-chair of the Asian Space Technology Summit. And I've been to China and Chengdu for a session about harvesting solar power in space and transmitting it to Earth, Mm -hmm. which would frankly solve all of our man-made climate problems, all of them. Um, And once you go to Asia, those people are looking up. Those people are not at all influenced by the dystopian ideas that we are destroying the planet. Yes, they want to do everything green. Yes, they do want to do everything in an environmentally friendly way, in a sustainable way. But they are looking up. They are a civilization on the rise. We are behaving like a civilization in the middle of its downfall.
1: Well, you know, you and I talked about in our previous conversation that if you look at history, we can see that we this is the fall of the American Empire. Our time is up. And, <clears throat> and unless we recreate it as something new, we'll be no more than the British Empire or the, the, the Roman Empire. It's fading out. And, and just like those previous empires, whether they were Mongolian or whatever they were, there is the distaste with what is going on and nothing to aspire to exactly as you were just saying. So we need to do that. <clears throat> and China's doing that beautifully. The you know the, the Belt and Road, the, the, the space programs, the green programs. I'm not saying I agree with the politics. I'm not saying I agree with communism, I'm not saying I agree with with the the human rights, but there's a lot of things they're doing right. They they have raised more people out of poverty than any, any empire has done in the history of mankind. We've got to look at what they're doing right, and that's important. But before I finish with this section, I really want to get back to what is it? Because I, I'm, one of the things about this show, Curiosity Bites, is I want people to think about things they would normally disagree with. <clears throat> so if I have a, a leftist uh democrat listening who goes or watching who says newt Gingrich, give me a break the guys are whatever and you're saying no this guy's extraordinary we still don't know why he's extraordinary because he doesn't seem that way the in the way that what we see of him uh in the media tell us about what is your experience besides the stone face that said yes Well, Newt has a
0: profound understanding of science, technology, and space. It is so detailed, it is so rich, that it almost defies understanding. Um, Very few people who are not in space as their only venture um, have this depth of understanding. Um, And he has some sense of the geopolitical situation. Now, he, in certain ways, is the epitome of evil. Mm-hmm. He's the man who single-handedly broke the democratic system in the United States, and we have to somehow come up with a way to resurrect it, um, because it's the best system. Uh, it's it's the system that gives individuals freedom, whereas the Chinese system polices everybody's thought. You think that uh, political correctness is horrible, and I do, um, that's nothing compared to what the Chinese do in enforcing a certain way of thinking and enforcing certain vast areas of ignorance. Mm-hmm. we If we want to see freedom as the future of humanity, we have to stop looking down and start looking up. We have to look toward the next paradise. Newt Gingrich, I don't know what's in his soul because I've never run across a person who's as stony and impenetrable. As Newt Gingrich in my entire life. And this has been an unusual life, Doug, with some truly unusual people. You know. So I can't rock Newt. I my empathic centers, my mirror neurons, which generally allow me to contain uh, a simulation of Prince in my heart, a simulation of Michael Jackson in my heart, missing. Okay, there's this little image from Herman Hess. And it's buried deep inside the darkness of yourself is a closet, and in that closet is ten thousand personalities that you could have become, if not for the the the, uh, the 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 you who finally took over. And but if you are a novelist or if you are an empath, those ten thousand personalities are always things that you can tap. If you're like Leon Uris, who was a tremendous admirer of my first book, you write, you sit down, and you start writing, and 44 characters come out of you. Where are they? They're from that closet inside yourself. So I can empath all kinds of people, and I cannot empath Newt Gingrich. He is quite deliberately impenetrable in a way I have never seen, because you can wish yourself to be impenetrable and try your best. But Newt is like a block of granite. I've never seen anything like it in my life. But we share a common interest in technology and the future of the United States of America and freedom of expression and the things that America stands for, pluralism, tolerance. These are all things that America embodies more than any other country in the world. And and we have an advantage. Why did England fall? at the end of the uh 1800s it fell because of the reason it rose it rose because of the invention of a whole bunch of mechanized technologies that allowed you to spin inexpensive cotton yep um and all kinds of machines that me- mechanized that process and uh the rise of a device that would power all of these machines called the steam engine yes and England, in the later part of the 1800s, invented things like a new way of making steel. Um, it, invented, uh, it invented the basis of the chemical industry, and then it sort of threw them away. It, it invented the first light bulbs, and it threw all of that away. Yep. Um, and that was its TV, era.
1: radio, all came out of Britain.
0: Yeah. A lot of so, places
1: that people think they were started, they weren't. They were all British originally.
0: And if you walk the streets of Britain, you will see little shops that in their windows have model steam engines because steam was that with which England gained her global power. Absolutely. So England made the mistake of not pioneering the new technologies. Um, America has not been making that mistake yet we created Google. We created Facebook. Um, Now, we're being overrun by TikTok (laughs) right now, and China is intent on moving ahead of us vastly in two major things, artificial intelligence and genetic engineering, biotechnology. Um, They know that we are hobbled by the religious right and its insistence on not using stem cells that could possibly come from a human embryo. They don't have that compunction. They're not throwing that technology away. And if they have their way, they will own space, which is what they plan to do by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist takeover of China, the birth of the new China. They plan to own space solar power, harvesting solar power in space and sending it down to Earth transmitting it. They plan to own that by 2035. And if we don't get our act together, they will do all these things. But guess what? Who's leading in space technology? It's an immigrant to the United States of America named Elon Musk, Yep, who is so far ahead of anybody else on planet Earth when it comes to making access to space inexpensive mm-hmm so that your children or my grandchildren if I ever have any can can buy a ticket to space yeah if they want um that person happens to be here in the united states why because we have more freedom of speech tolerance pluralism and the potential to tap capital than anybody else in the world now when it comes to capital china's becoming China has uh, resources, Look, when, when wars happen, they are a test of surplus. The country that has the greatest surplus wins. America has a $600 billion a year negative balance of trade. China has a $600 billion a year positive balance of trade. We have a tremendous debt. They have over $3.5 trillion in reserved assets, um, in money that they've saved, that they're saving and hoarding. So if there were ever a war, we would automatically lose. But the key to the future is always the development of the next technology and the mass acceptance of that technology. Bessemer, with his steel process, failed in England because he didn't get mass acceptance. Swan, with his first light bulbs, failed in England, because he didn't get mass acceptance. The guy who invented chemicals, deriving chemicals from coal tar, um, had to go back to Germany, yes, where he'd come from, because he didn't find a receptive environment in England. Um, it's, it's very important that we not only have the technologies, but that we have a vision of the future that looks up, so we can incorporate those technologies And live out their maximum potential. It's like, so
1: now we've got to to the ecstatic state or in search of the ecstatic state. We've got um, from that, the, the uh, expansion of what is possible from that, the multi-generational expansion of that we're standing on the shoulders of each, each of the previous standing on uh, the ceiling becomes the floor and, and but the the key in in what brings it down is the not only the commitment to keep looking forward but the commitment to being willing to accept and mass acceptance of this moving forward but now there is some caution around that because now we have a moral question and that's where we're going to have to go in the final section of this show <laughs> as we wind up this part of curiosity bites with my special guest howard bloom this is an intriguing conversation i'm sure you know if you've been listening and listen hey we always want you to to share it with other people if you are enjoying the show we'd love for you to rate review subscribe to the show and share it with everybody you know um everybody in the space community everybody in the music community everybody you know who knows of this amazing man howard bloom uh who has been writing and sharing his wisdom and his knowledge with the world for a very long time and we haven't even gone to his personal story which is a pretty fascinating story in and of itself but you know I wanted this to be a different journey than if you know there's a lot of shows you can go listen to Howard on and he's talking about many of the things that he's done and they're all pretty amazing and 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 background stories but we want to look at what What can we do next and how can we really move next? So that's where we're going to go in the next show and we'll see you in one click away. So till then, stay curious, my friends, stay curious.